Hello, and welcome to Every Moment is a Choice. I'm your host, Erica Behel, and I invite you to join me on a transformative journey to uncover the extraordinary potential that lies within every single moment of our lives. From the choices we make in our relationships, careers, and personal growth, to the mindset we embrace in the face of adversity, this podcast will empower you to embrace the notion that every moment holds a choice, and it's up to us to seize it. Join me as we engage in insightful conversations with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have harnessed the power of choice to achieve greatness, overcome obstacles, and create extraordinary lives. If you feel inspired by this episode, please read it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Every Moment is a Choice. I want to start off a little bit differently today. I want to read you some names. Trevor Reed, Matthew Heath, Osman Khan, Sean Turnell, Amo, Taylor Dudley, Fernando Espinoza, Cha Ti U, Danny Fenster, Brittany Griner, Tomu Vadel, Alirio Zambrano. Jose Luis Zambrano, Jorge Toledo, Gustavo Cardenas, and Jose Pereira. The names I just read out are all former political prisoners who were released back home to their families due in large part to the work of Mickey Bergman, who's here with me today. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. Let me talk a little bit about Mickey. He is the Vice President and Executive Director at the Governor Richardson Center for Global Engagement, a nonprofit and non-governmental organization that works on behalf of the families of wrongfully detained people abroad to negotiate and secure their release. Governor Bill Richardson has called Mickey the heart and soul of the center, which has secured the release of more American political prisoners than any other organization. Mickey created the term fringe diplomacy to describe the new field he is forging, which explores the space in international relations just beyond the boundaries of states and governments' capacity and authority. He has managed private diplomacy efforts in North Korea, Cuba, Myanmar, Venezuela, Russia, the Middle East, and in Africa. In recognition for the pioneering work he's done to build relationships, and bring home so many political prisoners, Mickey was recently honored with the 2023 James W. Foley Legacy Foundation American Hostage Freedom Award. And alongside Governor Bill Richardson, he has been nominated not once, but twice for the Nobel Peace Prize, first in 2019 and again this year. He is also a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, where he educates the next generation of diplomats on the value of emotional intelligence and its use in international relations. And so this is where I'd like to begin the conversation, Mickey, because this is where we first met at Georgetown. That is Uh, true. I won't mention how many years ago that was. And I remember the first time... 
I arrived on campus, they had this orientation program for the incoming students. And I met the other people I would be studying with in this program. And I looked around and I thought, how did I get in here again? (laughs) So I was quite intimidated. But actually, I have to admit, you know, thinking about your work and what you've done, I am, it is absolutely awe-inspiring. I get goosebumps thinking about it. And I'm just all around thrilled to have you here. So welcome. Well, thank you. And by the way, it's, it, it, I think we figured it out after that orientation, before we started the Georgetown, that that most of us had exactly the same feeling at that same moment. We all looked around and I think they, they we went around and each student uh, introduced themselves and what they've done for the last couple of years. Yeah. And we all had that same thing. Wait a minute, how did I get in? Yeah, <laughs> um, and that and that was the the feeling throughout the two years of that program. And I have to say, I, I've the the amount of people that I've from that peers of ours, for classmates of ours that I've worked with um, yeah. uh, over the years, including in this kind of work, has, has been absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not a it's not a, a nervous feeling or anything. It's just a proud feeling for me now to see where all of our classmates have ended up. Actually, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's get started. Let's let's talk a little bit about fringe diplomacy. You've created this term to describe what you're doing. So what is fringe diplomacy? Yeah, so if, I think in the intro, you, you described it kind of the thinking around it, which is really about exploring the space that is beyond the boundaries and the traditional authority of governments in international relations. And it does rely uh, heavily on businesses, philanthropists, individuals, NGOs, academia, who are empowered just like n- never before and have just as much to gain from a from a prosperous and stable world as governments do. But unlike governments, we have more flexibility. Uh, we're not mirrored in, in diplomatic choreography and in protocol and in with the flags that we're wearing basically as suits. And if you look at our diplomacy over the last um, probably a decade or more, it has become so uh, so bureaucratic that we have left behind one of the most important elements of diplomacy in my mind, which is the human one. And so we believe that, you know, that our ability or inability of diplomacy to successfully share and collaborate with others, whether it's communities or states, on some of the issues that are most important to us, that's a market failure in engagement. And so we want to kind of, to use fringe diplomacy to add that uh, uh, freely from those uh, uh, from those bureaucratic constraints and, and really explore the dimension, the neglected dimension uh, uh, of the human experience and the human relationships. And if we do it right, uh, fringe diplomacy actually creates an additional layer of access and personal relationship that can help overcome political and business and societal crises uh, between communities and nations. And we divide the work on fringe diplomacy into two parts. Uh, the first is engagement, and the second one is intervention. Um, and intervention is typically when we end up going and releasing a political prisoner or a hostage, um, and everybody loves intervention because it's quick, it's tangible, it's sexy. Wolf Blitzer does a you know does a special on it. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, engagement uh, intervention, sorry, cannot be successful without years of engagement. Mm. And engagement is really the the heart of what fringe is at, and it takes many many shapes. 
and engagement is not government to government in our world. It's much more of community-based, community-based. Sometimes governments are involved. Sometimes it's people, sometimes it's businesses, um, sometimes it's NGOs, sometimes it's it's other other elements. And we've done this kind of work in places that typically the United States has trouble with, whether it's Cuba, in Myanmar, in North Korea, uh, in, in places like that. And when you build relationships based on engagement and a true engagement, so it's not just a fake one, not just for the sake of saying that, but actually something that is better in society, you build trust. And you build relationships. I'll give you the example of Cuba. It was easy for us to engage in Cuba as Americans during the late Obama years, mm-hmm. President Obama, because he has removed, he didn't remove sanctions, but he punched holes in the sanctions that allowed Americans to go and interact with businesses, entrepreneurs. That was easy. It became harder when President Trump came to power and reversed all of Obama's policies on Cuba. And yet we continued to go. We couldn't do much at that point in terms of business development because there were constraints, legal constraints on us. But what the Cubans saw in that, our friends in Cuba, our partners in Cuba, what they saw is that even when it gets hard, even if we can't really do anything tangible, we still showed up. Yeah. Um, and that built a, a level of trust and, and relationship, which is really, you know, personal that at any time of a crisis actually can come really handy. Absolutely. And the engagement work to me that you're talking about is the building of relationships kind of behind the scenes. Not yeah. It doesn't grab the headlines, right? But it's the behind Correct. the scenes work. What exactly, you've described a little bit about whose interest, um, who are interested in maintaining an engagement relationship like that. But what does that actually look like? Is it exchange programs? Is it business investments? What what type of engagement is that? So it's both. And I'll give you another specific example of years of engagement that we've done with Myanmar. And we started this actually in two, 2012. And I and I went there initially with Governor Richardson, who knows Aung San Suu Kyi from decades before. But we went there and that was three years before the elections in Myanmar, the democratic reform. They just announced that they're going towards the elections and we already jumped in there and we asked, we met both with Aung San Suu Kyi, we met with back then the vice president who was part of the military party, the USDP there. And we asked them both in the individual meetings how it is that we can help. And that's a key component of fringe is that you don't go there and tell them, oh, let us come as Americans and tell you what, what to do because we know best. We, we really don't. The last decade proves it. Uh, it's much more complicated, but... We actually go as friends and we try and see what are the ways that we can be helpful. And uh, both Aung San Suu Kyi and the vice president at the time told us in two separate meetings, again, they come from very different backgrounds and parties. uh, They asked for for a few things that were very similar. The first was training of their parliament and the political activists, because they said, we're going to have elections in three years. Most of our members of parliament never served constituencies. The legislator in Myanmar had 675, I think, members. None of them have ever served really in a role as a legislator. It was more of a retirement plan for military generals. So they asked us to come in and actually uh, help them look at it, look at how to build budgets, how to oversee the executive, uh, how to create a relationship with constituents in the field, in their districts, which they've never really served before. 
And because we are so small, the Richardson Center really is is, is Governor Richardson, myself, and a couple of short-term consultants that we that we hire, and our budget is limited. Uh, but we got um, a consultant on the ground in Myanmar, Mindy Walker, a woman from Wisconsin that we just happened to run into in the streets there. And we gave her a little bit of money and she started training. And before the elections, we have trained 3,500 uh, Myanmar political activists and candidates that were running in these elections, most of them women, because that was our focus. But the second focus that we had was to make sure it's multi-party. Everybody else was training only Aung San Suu Kyi's party. We were training everybody, uh, mm. including the military party, including the minority parties, because that was, from our perspective, the way we think it could help. So that was one thing. The second thing that they've asked us to do was to bring in American investors and businesses first around food security and water distribution, which was a, a problem in Myanmar. Myanmar is one of the most richest countries in the world in terms of resources and one of the poorest populations. Yeah. Uh, and it was a matter of it's a matter of distribution and, and governance there. Uh, and so we started with that and we bought a bunch of uh, social entrepreneurs from the United States with clean cook stoves, with water wheels, with different solutions on, on distributions of water and, and growth of, uh, of food. And again, we didn't go to teach them anything. Yeah. We went to meet with peers and share stories. And that kicked up really, really well. And soon enough, Myanmar went through a, a mobile revolution or penetration from 10% mobile penetration to 75% mobile penetration within two years or three years. And suddenly everything was online. It was on Facebook. Funny enough, not Google. They used to call it, let's, let's face Google things. Um, <laughs> Um, that was their access, and it just turned into a technology uh, investment uh, um, delegations and exchanges. And we went there. I went there about thirteen times uh, through these years, taking different groups of Americans, um, bringing them over here. Funny enough, one of our uh, first training sessions, we had a young um, mayor from South Bend, Indiana, that came with us to do the training. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, mm -hmm. today the Secretary of Transportation in the yep. U.S., he was with us in the first training. And that's that's the engagement. That's a, an example of engagement. But if I may, I'll tell you how it played out without us thinking we did it because we knew it was the right thing to do. Now, fast forward, and we're looking at uh, following the the removal of Aung San Suu Kyi through the through the military government and the establishment of a military government in Myanmar in 2021, and suddenly everybody else lost all contact and our ability to communicate with the government of Myanmar, we didn't. Not because they were our buddies' buddies, but because they remember that when we did the training, we also trained them. Mm -hmm. And these were the same people, some of the people that were in our training, you know, at that point, almost a decade before, are now were now ministers in the military government. And we had some contact and some level of credibility that helped us uh, do something that might be a little bit controversial, such as engaging with a military government in Myanmar following the coup, but led to the release of quite a few prisoners. So that's how the an example of how that circle actually works. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like an incredibly long game, though, Mickey. You know, the the type of game that that requires a a very purposeful organization like yourselves, and maybe not politicians or other people who are in office for maybe four years. You know, it sounds like a, it's something that 
you really need to invest in over the long term. It, it absolutely is. And and it's one of the things that I feel like we're, you know, you and I, Erica, I, you know, you didn't want to mention the years, but a couple of decades ago, when we were in school together, and we had that sense of ideology and 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 ideals and 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 a way of thinking that there there are strategists in our governments that have a, a long vision all about world order and stability. And I believe those existed in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we stepped into our professional life and we got exposed to how things actually work, um, at least for me, uh, I found out that unfortunately the brain power is there but the capacity and the bandwidth does not exist anymore. So yeah. we are, just like you said, we are, we're chasing the news, we are reactive. Now there's an element of government that has to be reactive. The Department of State has to be reactive. Different, different elements from the US government needs to be reactive to events because events happen and we can't control them. However, you want to have a body, which might be the National Security Council, who mm-hmm. thinks long-term, who has a vision, uh, I know we're getting sidetracked a little bit, but look, the, in, over the last few years, the world order has been changing underneath us. Yeah, nobody can deny it. We have yep. different blocks. the 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 world order of the post Cold War is kind of over, and yet I have not heard a vision from the president of the United States. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's the current president, the former president, the future president. I have not yet heard a vision of how the president sees the world, how he wants the world to look like in the future, and therefore what America does in order to do it. And, and that's a lack. I know it's a, it's a go-around way of responding to your question. And we don't have that vision, and we don't have that from our political leadership because we're stuck in political cycles. But as a society, as a community, we should have a vision of what that is, and we can drive it. And so you're right. It's a long game that we're playing around in fringe and engagement. And sometimes we would engage, we would spend, you know, a lot of time engaging and efforts and resources engaging community, and it never comes to an intervention. Yeah, that's fine because again, the engagement itself has to be worthwhile. It has to actually be an advancement of society, something that is that is a public good, and then we're comfortable with some of it hit just like Myanmar hit on the on the spot when we needed it. Some of it has not, but it was still worthwhile and still continues to be worthwhile. We are, again, we're a small organization, so we can't really, this type of work cannot be done globally. You have to pick to pick your spots and do it. And, and it goes to another issue, I guess. Stop me if I'm talking too much. Um, uh, but, you know, in, in, in our world, especially in the world of, uh, when it comes to philanthropic support, there's so many organizations and so many good ideas out there. Brilliant people come up with great ideas and they pilot them and they test them and they're fantastic and they work really, really well. And then suddenly come big foundations and philanthropists and say, hey, this is great. Here's $10 million. Now, you know, bring it to scale. And about 90% of these ideas fail. Mm-hmm. Not because they're bad ideas, they're fantastic ideas. But they, but the concept of of just pour money into it and scale it up to have bigger and larger uh, uh, impact fails. And one of the things that I argue is that if you take the principles of this, uh, of what we're doing, the good things, not only us but anybody else, any other good ideas, and instead of scale, proliferate. Right. Have other organizations open source it. Have other organizations do it for their own 
reasons and the always, and that's how you actually get the impact. Um, and so it, it, it's it's my way of saying, even if somebody poured a lot of resources into us and we don't have many resources, it's not like we can be successful in every single country in the world. We can't. What I do need and what I would love to see is other organizations saying, hmm, this whole thing about you know emotional intelligence, that seems to work. Engagement, that seems to work. Now, we might be focused on education or we might be focused on food security or on climate. Right. Let's use those tools. Let's do the same. Let's use these, these things that work. And, and you at that point, you actually start to proliferate engagement in a way that is brilliant. And, and I would argue, I had this conversation, a former student of mine from Jochan who went to work for Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Look, Airbnb has the potential of fringe diplomacy like no other entity, business-wise. Explain. You have people coming into different cultures and staying in people's homes. The level of engagement and familiarity and intimacy is unprecedented. Mm. And these are not people who are coming to fight. These are people who are excited. They're coming to see a new place. They're coming to experience the local community. And Airbnb, um, uh, especially in some places, uh, you know, just like a simple program like, oh, you booked an Airbnb in Myanmar? That's great. Let us send you some material. Just reading material, not political positions, not propaganda, just a little bit of material so you can actually engage with them on their history and what's happening right now. Uh, Again, just a resource for people. Most people won't use it, but some will. But again, the idea of outsiders going and living in homes in Myanmar's Airbnb is just, it's mind-blowing for what it can do in the engagement between societies. It sounds amazing. And it's a really interesting point you're making about what, what I'm hearing is that, you know, rather than the Richardson Center becoming a 200 person organization, you would rather have 1000 little Richardson Centers all focused on different issues. Correct. Absolutely. And not owned by a Richardson Center, owned by the people who are running them. Um, yeah. uh, I'll tell you on a personal level, I, I remember um, about a decade ago, I, I was working at the Aspen Institute and it was, we developed a program there. Uh, it was a public-private partnership uh, program. It started with U.S.-Palestinian partnership on economic uh, um, opportunities. And then it developed under uh, President Obama into this thing called Partners for New Beginning, which was a larger engagement with, between the U.S. and the Muslim world. Again, not government to government, but people to people, business to business. And in that process, it was a fantastic thing. I learned so much about engagement through doing this and developing it. But before we knew it, we developed from one country engagement to 11 countries. I had a staff of 14 full-timers, a lot of them, by the way, uh, graduates of our program in Georgetown, the MSFS. And I found myself outside of the engagement and into management. Mm. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. There are elements of it that was fun. But my heart is in the engagement, is in being in the field and meeting the people. And so at that point, I actually, uh, my deputy was also a classmate of our, a classmate of ours, Anna Navarro. And I told her, Anna, you're going to be the director. I'm leaving. And I went to restart completely as a startup, basically, uh, fringe diplomacy um, uh, outside and take those lessons that we've learned in that engagement with Muslim-majority countries and do it anywhere in the world, everywhere in the world, which was really the birth of fringe diplomacy. And Anna took over Partners for New Beginnings. She was fantastic at it, as I had no doubt that she will be. But that was my lesson. I do not want to manage a big 
team of people or 20 organizations that carry the same mission. I want to do my own thing. I call it the, the mom and pops kind of impact. Yeah. And so I might not be able to talk in the millions, but the names that you mentioned at the beginning and, and the people that I know through the engagement work, I know who they are. I know their families and I know how their lives have changed. And that is everything I that matters to me. That's amazing. I'm struck by the fact that how much you love the engagement. And I'm wondering, was it the attraction to being able to secure the release of prisoners? Or was it actually your career developing more out of the engagement part? And naturally that led to the type of relationships that would enable, um, you know, securing release of people. What, which came first, the attraction for you? The, the chicken and egg. Uh, it, it's a great question because it, it just like the chicken and egg, it kind of came together. And in very separate ways, it wasn't by design. It's not like I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do and how it all plays out. My work on engagement was, you know, started with the Aspen Institute and that kind of work, uh, as I described and developed. And from there, kind of grew into French diplomacy. My work on intervention was happening at parallel, complete parallel, uh, when I met Governor Richardson in 2006. Um uh, which was again a fluke, a bunch. By the way, I, I, you know, it was very lucky, and I described lucky as 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 your ability to recognize and be prepared for when moments and opportunities prepare them. So it, it presents themselves and jump on this, and so that's kind of my 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 luck on this one. Governor Richardson um, reached out to some donors when he was asked to go to Sudan in 2006 to try and help, uh, um, you know, as a private citizen, and even though he was a governor, as a private citizen, to meet with President Bashir of Sudan at the time. And he reached out to some donors to get a private jet funded. And one of those donors happened to have been my boss at the time, Danny Abraham, who told him, yeah, you know, I'll give you money for the jet, but you need to take this guy. He's done, you know, some humanitarian work on Sudan. Like, he, he, you know, and so I get a phone call from Governor Richardson on a Wednesday morning. And it's kind of like it's with his voice. Okay, is this Mickey Bergman? I said, yes. He says, this is Governor Richardson of New Mexico. I need you to get pack your stuff and get your ass to Santa Fe. You're coming with me to Khartoum. <laughs> and, and at that point, it's not only that I didn't meet him, I didn't know he existed. And I had really 48 hours to decide whether this is a great idea, an opportunity of a lifetime, or the last mistake I make before my head gets separated from my body because I was born and raised in Israel, and Israel and Sudan at the time were you know, at the state of war. Yeah. Um, and so I relied again, by the way, on our colleagues from MSFS. In this case, it was a, a woman named Sarah Margon, mm-hmm. and, uh, who had a lot of information on Sudan. And I tried to kind of, she gave me a briefing. Um, I relied on a lot of advice uh, and I went with him. And in Sudan, uh, he worked on the release of uh, an American prisoner, a, a journalist. And it was just absolutely mind-blowing to see, again, as a private citizen there, what he's, he was able to do on an intervention side of it. And that's when things started to click for me and saying, wait a minute, those two actually live together. And it took me a while to kind of kind of converge those two worlds because I had contracts that I was running with Aspen Institute that was doing engagement. And I had work with Governor Richardson on intervention. And over the years, and it was not without uh, without uh, arguments and struggles uh, that I was able to, to converge the two. And now they live uh, fringe diplomacy has its own 501c3 and uh, as an organization that manages a lot of these trips 
but it's done within the context of the Richardson Center. So it's very, very intentional, um, even though the pandemic kind of put a put a, a big dent in our ability to travel and do the exchanges, but we're picking back up on it. Yeah. Um, so that's the one we had. It, it really, it, it happened parallel and mm-hmm. it merged over several years of hard work and a lot of arguments and trying to push the boundaries and finding finding the right way. And it, it continues to be a journey. Uh, because every time you do an engagement, it costs. And you have to convince your boss of why it's a good investment, especially when you have resource constraints. And especially when the payoff or the ROI might occur 10 years from now. If at all. And yeah, it's really, really hard to, yeah. And it's really, really hard to, you know, I remember one of our professors from MSFS used to say in conflict uh, mitigation, uh, conflict prevention, sorry. And he used to say that, that there's two problems with conflict prevention. One is that it's very expensive. And second is that if you're successful, there's nothing to show for. Yep. Because you just averted the conflict. Nobody nobody believes that it would have happened. Exactly. So I, I wanted to ask you because when you're teaching now, you know, you're you're influencing new diplomats coming up through the through the ranks at Georgetown now. Yeah. And there's a lot of emphasis on emotional intelligence. Oh yeah, um, that you attribute to your success. What what does emotional intelligence look like in action? Um, so first of all, the way I define emotional intelligence in, is really your ability to recognize and understand emotions in yourself and in others, mm-hmm. and your ability to use this awareness to manage your own behavior and your relationship with others. Um, so it really is four different planes of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is a self-awareness one. The second one is a self-management. So once you're aware of, of where you're coming from and where, what you're projecting, can you manage it? Can you control it? Uh, and the third layer uh, of this is your ability to recognize uh, the emotions of others as they're engaging with you. And of course, the fourth layer is your ability now to use that uh, um, that emotion. And use sounds a little negative, but it really is not. It's not a manipulation from a from a negative perspective. But it's your ability to to use your understanding of the emotion state of others in order to manage your relationships with them. Uh, so four four different planes, and and it's amazing too. I'll give you I can give you a couple of examples, both on engagement and intervention on this, and and maybe. Uh, one of them, to me, is one of the the, the most striking one, and that with, when it comes to North Korea, uh, because I've worked there and I've been engaged with the North Koreans now for about ten years in different work. Some of it is engagement work, some of it has been intervention work. And when I talk to an American audience and I ask them, you know, what should we do about North Korea? And everybody has an opinion, at least two opinions a person of what we need to do. And and sometimes I like and I do it with my students. So I write all these ideas on the whiteboard, and then I push the whiteboard out, and then I and then I say, "Can anybody here tell me why do the North Koreans hate us so much?" Again, as Americans, and there is silence. Yep, there's silence because everybody has ideas of what we need to do, but nobody has thought why is it that they hate us so much? Why is it that our relationship is like that? Not in the oh yeah, because they're trying to send missiles on us. Like, why? And and to most Americans, those who even remember that there was such a thing as the Korean War, they remember it, if at all, as something this it wasn't that, that little war between World War II and Vietnam. 
Yeah. And then my my favorite next question, which again, I've learned, you know, in my own flesh when I was in Pyongyang, because I didn't know it before. Um, I asked, anybody has any idea of how many Koreans died in that war? And there's typically again, a little bit of awkward silence. Then somebody will throw 50,000, 100,000, 200,000. It's been four and a half million Koreans who died in that war. And there's typically a gasp because it's a huge number. And when I learned that number, I was actually in the war museum in Pyongyang. And it was the um, the foreign service officer, the Korean, who, who told me, who threw that like casual. It's, it's a fact for them. They know that. And first of all, I didn't have any way of checking it because there's not exactly internet access there. But it is true. Now, it's combined. It's North Koreans and South Koreans. But from the Korean perspective, it's the same people. It's the same families. This is as they were dividing. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, shit, four and a half million people. It happened a decade after the end of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I know the Holocaust was systemic killing of my people. I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, And Korea was a war. So it was different. But the sheer number at the same time frame, and I know, I'm just a a third generation of survivors and victims. It's fresh. It meant to me that the people I'm negotiating with and engaging with in North Korea, it could have been their fathers or their mothers or their grandparents for sure and their uncles. And with four and a half million dead, everybody suffered a loss. Yeah. And and then it occurred to me even more so that as, as a Jew and as a Israeli from birth, I had reconciliation with Germany. I have recognition in the world of the loss that my people suffered. I have Holocaust museums. I have International Holocaust Memorial Day. They don't have any of that. Now, again, very different. It's not systemic killing. It's not about apologizing. It's about acknowledging. And what I did with that, again, understanding food, that just hit me like as, as a, you know, I describe it actually as a punch in my stomach because that's really how it felt, um, which is something, by the way, about emotional intelligence that we have to remember that emotions actually generate, they come from a from a very physical reaction. Yep. And there's a reason why we say that when we, you know, that you, it feels like you got punched in the stomach, it actually feels that way because you feel like you lost lost your breath. And when you feel like you're mm-hmm. you're scared, when people say you have cold feet, it literally, you actually have cold feet because the circulation exactly. slows down in, in your extremities. And that's how it felt to me. I was just before a meeting with the vice minister of foreign affairs, the North Korean ones. And that was at the time that I was there to negotiate uh, for the release of Otto Warmbier, the American student that was held in North Korea back in those in those years. And we started the meeting with the vice minister. And those meetings always have, you know, the, the official part of it starts with the protocol, exactly everything that Fringe is not about. It's the hard language. You're the source of all evil. Your leaders are trying to kill my leaders, all of these kind of things. And if I were a diplomat, I would have had to protest and everything would go to hell to begin this meeting. I'm not a diplomat. I don't represent the government. I'm okay. Let them vent that. Uh, And then when he was done with his portion, I told him, look, I'm going to go back to my points, but I have to tell uh, tell you something that yesterday your officer took me to the museum. And I told him, look, this is the first time I've ever heard that four and a half million Koreans died in that war. It never occurred to me. And I've been working with you guys for a long time. 
And I can assure you that most Americans don't even think about it that way. And I said, and to me, it means a lot. And I, I again, I led, led with my vulnerability of, you know, being Jewish and, and what I've grew up on, on the education of the Holocaust. And I said, I, I now for the first time understand the huge rift that is between us. And it wasn't about apologies. It's about acknowledging it. And the meeting completely changed. Wow. The meeting completely changed because he had losses in his family. Mm-hmm. On that war, it's that fresh, and and this is to me it was one of the most powerful examples of how emotional intelligence actually works and the power of it. And it's not because you're sitting there and and you know calculating everything. It's it, when you talk about it, when you're aware of it, when you when you practice it, and it's a natural progression and your ability to actually communicate. So that's one example of this. Another example in the in the intervention side of it actually it relates to the story of. Uh, Two prisoners, Danny Fenster and Imo, um, and our ability to get them get them out, and it was purely based on emotional intelligence. Now, it's not because we were so great in, in manipulating anybody else. They were doing the same thing to us. Uh, but we knew that the key to get Danny Fenster home would be to create a meeting between Governor Richardson and the head of the military uh, government, the senior general, Minan Long. And not only that, we learned from our past failures that in that meeting, you can't raise the issue of Danny Fenster in front of any of the other staffers or ministers, because then they would dig in. It's a matter of pride. So we did the meeting. We did all of this. The, the trip was about engagement, it was about COVID vaccines, and about trying to find ways to, to help the people of Myanmar. And then the governor asked the, the leader, can we... Can we have one-on-one? I'll send my people out and you'll send your people out. And, and towards that, I prepared the governor with a note that was based on our understanding of who the leader is as a person mm-hmm. and, and, and his type of leadership and his personality. Um, and the governor had five minutes to create an emotional bond with the leader to the extent that when he asks him to release Danny Fenster, it's not in anything, it's without anything in return, except for an emotional accountability or emotional attachment between the two of them. And so when it went to that and, and the leaders looked at him and said, you know, I'm going to, you know, he asked him actually, he said, you know, is this a big story in the United States? And the governor told him, look, Danny Fenster being released will be a big story, but I don't want you to do it for the United States. I want you to do it for me. And, and the leader then said, you know, I will do this. I will release him to you, but it will take me a little time. Will you come back to visit me? And the governor said, of course. And so we had to go back to the U.S. and then come back again in another visit. And But that was a bond that, that they were able, an emotional bond based on our ability to plan it and, and to work on it and to build it as such, uh, to prove to him. And again, it's not a, it wasn't a lie to prove to him that we're there in a, in a sincere way of engagement um, and that that is something that can help us. And, and he did that. And he released Danny Fenster and he released Aimo, who was a Myanmar person and who was a really, really good friend of mine before she got uh, in prison uh, because she was actually one of our staffers that was doing all this training that I talked about uh, before, years before that. That's absolutely incredible. Because I think for those of us who are not 
in this field. For those of us who get in, information about these prisoner releases through CNN or through a major news outlet, you normally hear just the the headline of somebody was released. You know something yeah. went on in the background, but in most cases, you hear about oh there was a swap done, there was some type of um, quid yeah. pro quo. You know, finally we were able to you know figure out what the Russians wanted or something like that. And and you're saying actually you can do this without a swap just via understanding someone on a human level understanding what matters to them and breaking through all of these assumptions of why you should not like this person yeah and so yeah and and i would say i I want to be um cautious here because it's not not every case can be resolved that way uh meaning that you know in some cases it's inevitable it's going to be a swap or there's going to be some sort of an exchange um, but in, even if those in those cases, uh, the Brittany Griner case uh, uh, in the United States, a basketball player, or Trevor Reed, who returned a, a few months before her, we were engaged with the Russians on this early on. It was clear to us that this is going to be a swap because the Russians, you know, had something in mind. But yeah. the two governments were unable, absolutely unable to meet with each other because of the background, the war in Ukraine and everything else to meet with each other and insulate the issue and refine what it is that it is going to take in order to get those people home. Because every time a government official, American and Russian would meet, very quickly it will escalate around Ukraine, nuclear agreements, um, you're evil, no, you're evil, all of these kind of things, and you couldn't insulate it. But we stepped in, again, not on behalf of the US government, on behalf of the families, and we engaged directly with the Russians. At the highest level, we flew to Russia. We were in Moscow the day of the invasion into, into, into Ukraine. We did not plan it that way. We just arrived there, slept, and woke up in the morning at the hotel near the Red Square to hear that the Putin speech. But that's not what we were there for. We were there to get Trevor Reed back home. Um, and Paul Whelan, which again, Paul Whelan, we have failed. Trevor Reed, we've succeeded. And we were able, because of our engagement, we weren't able to, we tried. They didn't give us Trevor Reed for free, but we were able to come back and articulate to our government and say, here's what it will take. We can guarantee that if you do this, this is how it's going to happen. Um, and so there's a lot of that. So again, it's 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 a way of saying not you can't always avoid the swaps and the and the exchanges of the transactions, but even getting to those requires emotional intelligence, requires that kind of engagement and trusted engagement and informal engagement in order to articulate what it could what it can take otherwise you know the, the two sides when they talk to, when they don't talk directly we rely on third parties and their interpretation and at the end of the day if you have a fight with somebody you need to meet with that person you need to hear exactly from them what their perspective are and you need to convey what your perspective is because sometimes when people ask for something it's not the exact ask. You need to understand why they're asking for it. And once when you, once you understand the why, maybe there's something else they can get that can satisfy the same why, but it's more doable. Um, and so so that's that's kind of a little bit of a, of a flavor of this. And and that has been most cases there's there's some sort of a, of an exchange or some sort of an arrangement. And uh, when we're able to get somebody home without it, uh, you know, we got Taylor Dudley home from Russia without anything in return. But that was 
because of all the work we've done on 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 um, uh, on Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner, and that we were able to get, you know, it's almost like the Russians threw him, you know, saying, yeah, yeah, th- this one will go for you uh, uh, for this, and whatever it takes, we we you know, we we're able to get to get him home, and and so that's um, that's kind of the the way the way we look at it, and the way we approach it. Absolutely incredible. So I, you mentioned the families, and I, I did want to talk a little bit about the families because I know they are so close to you personally. And I know that when you have received awards, it's the families who, who show up and support you. And, and you know, I, I totally understand how they will be forever kind of linked in some way to you and what you've done for them. And I wanted to ask you, about you've been talking a lot about establishing trust using emotional intelligence with the people you are negotiating with and on the other hand you are i understand very close to the families who are going through the ordeal in real time with them how are you able to reconcile the relationship you have with um I would say the, the captors or the the kind of instigators of all this pain, yeah. as well so, as the family. Well, I have a lot of things to say about that. Uh, let me let me start um, uh, with with one thing that is that is important. When I engage with uh, the North Koreans or the Iranians, uh, the people that we we like to refer to as you know crazies and irrational, what you find out on a personal level is that human beings are human beings. And so often we have so much in common on the human level. And this is not to remove them from the responsibility for the awful things that they're responsible for and that they've done. It's not at all. But sometimes you figure out that that circumstances in life lead people to do things that they're not necessarily so aware of. Um, And I can give you a couple of examples for this. I'll go back. One example is in Myanmar in the early in the early training that we did in 2013, and we were training, you know, the parliament, and we had parliamentarians, and we had at the time 75% of the parliament in Myanmar was former military people, and they were actually with uniforms, and we were doing the training there, and we did one of the things we did was a little um, role playing, when one of them was playing the president, and the others were kind of asking him questions about the budget. And, and arguing on different things. And, and I remember seeing all these 70-year-old retired generals who are now members of parliament, all giddy and excited about playing the roles and arguing between them to dedicate more funds to education and to the farmers and to the poor population. But, but excitedly arguing for this with all the great reasons. And I remember we, I had this side conversation with, with Mayor Pete at the time, we say, isn't that amazing? This mismatch between what those people are responsible for and what we're seeing them arguing now, which was very genuine. And you realize at the moment that that the world is not really divided into good and evil, uh, that good and evil exists in all of us. And circumstances bring up different things. And again, it's not in order to remove the responsibility from anybody, but it's an opportunity to grab the positive parts and see what you can get from them and what you can achieve with them. So, um, and that is something that I'm not, I don't just say, and I don't pretend to do. I actually believe it. Uh, and it's, it's true about the generals in Myanmar, but it's also true about Aung San Suu Kyi, the same woman that has championed 
human rights and minorities in Myanmar and equality and, and democracy and all that stuff is also the same woman who has allowed the genocide to happen under her watch. And yes, people will argue she had circumstances that led her to that. Yes, but I have also heard her make comments about minorities that are Muslims that would make you cringe. Uh, and so you realize people are complicated. And, and the key is to find the, the part of humanity in them and play on that one and get, you know, things that you can get that are good and positive. So that's one thing I, I want to say on this, because it, to me, it's such an important, important thing. When it comes to the families, well, before I even get to the families, another point, um, negotiations. Uh, we use that term in, in, and everybody has in mind a very specific perception. And unfortunately, the term negotiations, I think, has been dominated by really fantastic books written by, by negotiators. Some of them we might like, some of them we might not like. I mean, President Trump wrote The Art of Negotiations. Chris Voss, the FBI uh, hostage negotiator, wrote uh, Never Split the Difference, which made it into a masterclass. And these books are fantastic, and there are great guidelines of how to negotiate. And if you read them and you follow them one for one, you can be the best negotiator ever if you are them. And if you notice that they have a very specific personality, these are typically a, a strong personality, a, a bully of sorts, somebody who can fake it, somebody who can who can play that role. Yeah. And that does damage on two levels. One, it makes people who are not like them try to pretend that they're them. And everybody can see through that. So if it's not you genuinely, it's not going to work. So if you're a different personality than, than Donald Trump and you try to be Donald Trump, it's not going to fly. And the second damage it does it, it, it that it takes people, other people with different personalities, myself included, and make us believe that we cannot be good negotiators, which is absolutely not true. Uh, because I do believe that in the truth of negotiations, communications, and leadership, it starts, again, go back to your emotional intent, it starts from self-awareness. You have to figure out who you are genuinely, not who you want to be, not who you want, how people to see you um, or how you imagine yourself to be, but who you really are, your, 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 basically your character composition. And it's, it's hard uh, because you find things sometimes that you would wish were different, but you need to embrace yourself because there's no such thing as good personality or bad personality. It's just different personalities. And there's no good personality for negotiations or bad ones. It's just as long as you figure out who you are genuinely and you lean into that, you can be a fantastic negotiator. And for me, I'm not a bully. I'm not an actor. I can't play poker for the life of me. I shouldn't. I'll be losing a lot of money. And I accepted that. Mm -hmm. And so I lean with that. Yeah. And just like I, I, I told the story about the North Koreans and how I leaned in with my vulnerability, that is my this is my go-to. I go very personal, uh, but I'm comfortable with that. Not everybody will be comfortable with that. For me, it fits my personality. I go in very personal and it creates um, a, a genuine sense of trust and authenticity that has worked for me yep. in this. And negotiations for me, it's not that give and take. It's not that transaction. I define it as our ability to influence somebody else's behavior. And so it's a, and yes, a lot of times you influence it through, you know, figuring out what, what they want and, and give it to them. But it's not only that. There's an emotional layer to it that, that we typically just ignore. 
and now I'll go. I'll get to the families uh, because of my personality and because of what uh, what motivates me, what drives me, what connects me. I am the one within the between me and Governor Richardson. I'm the one that spends all the time with the families, I, and I do the same thing with them as I do mm-hmm. with anybody else. I lean in. It's a personal relationship, and and it's a genuine one. It's not a fake one. It's a genuine one. I get to know them. I know their kids. I know their stories. Ironically. I very rarely meet the actual prisoner, but I know their families really, really well. And it's very, very personal. And that motivates me. Uh, Governor Richardson, my boss, very, very different personality. He's much more of the of the high-level negotiator personalities like Donald Trump or Chris Voss. And for him, he is extremely empathetic and he knows it. And so he actually would try not to meet with the families because he wants not to be impacted by that relationship when he needs to make decisions. So it's, again, different personalities, different approaches. Uh, It's funny because when I need him to do something that otherwise he probably wouldn't do, I make sure that he meets a family uh, because then, you know, he's, you know, despite his his act, he's a (laughs) softy and he cares about them and he's empathetic. Um, uh, But that's kind of the the logic behind our engagement with with the families. And uh, and these families, I mean, you know, my wife says like, you know, they kind of become your family as well. And I, again, it's funny that when the prisoners come back, they very often have no idea who did what, because typically they come back on a government plane. And so they hear about, you know, the government, we like to say, that, you know, the government took the, the football and moved it from the two yard line into the end zone. But they don't hear about who brought the football or everybody, that, but it's not only us, every single effort that brought the football to the, the two yard line, their families do, the prisoners don't. And, and so even after they come back and I had the, the last year has been fantastic because I, I got to meet a lot of these prisoners, it, not only the ones that we brought back, but the ones that the government brought back and, you know, and, and I met them afterwards. And but I'm still closer to the families. And that's uh, um, mm. and, and, you know, and, and, and that's where it's just extremely powerful connection. I, I know it's um, one of the hardest moments for me in, in all of this was when uh, Otto Wombier came back home. And he came back home in a coma, yeah. which we didn't expect. We did not know in all this time that we're negotiating. And, and I, I had such an up and down because when uh, Fred and, and Cindy called me to let me know that he crossed the, the airspace, I was so excited. And then they told me, well, there's a problem. And they, they just, you know, and like my world went from that huge high into this huge uh, uh, low. And I went and I, I went to, uh, to Cincinnati to see him when he came back. Um, and I was um, uh, with his mother uh, by his bedside, uh, and, and he was, you know, he was uh, in coma, in a coma. And I remember that he, I was so devastated because from all the different scenarios that I've played over the 18 months that we worked to get him home, this was not one of them. We had great scenarios in which I fly home with him or he comes back, and I had terrible scenarios in which he gets executed, but never this. And I I was devastated and I was crying and I was hugging Cindy and all I could say, all I could mumble over and over again is, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And and she said to me, she said, Mickey, it's because of your efforts that I was able to hug my my son when he was still warm. And that that moment I will never forget. Um, because in 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 her worst time. Uh, her words uh, uh, just meant so much to me uh, in this. Um, 
and and it's interesting every now and then when i when i see them and you know my my role in in the lives of prisoners and when they come back so it's rare that i actually see them after but when i when i saw cindy um three years later and she looked at me and she's like wow mickey you're still doing this huh and and i said yeah but you know why and and she said yes i do um but yeah um even as you're just saying this i am feeling emotions um i i'm just imagining mickey what it's like for you i mean how do you take care of yourself you're what you're describing is yeah oh it, it is and and uh and 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 my wife knows it my wife Robin knows it that every time you know when you do um when you do a family meeting or a call uh, you know it's not like a 10 minute catch up it's these are like hours or an hour and a half of intense meetings and and you just need a break afterwards just an emotion a mental break uh because it's because a part of a part of what I do is in empathy like you take on that that pain uh, on you and you need that break and and I uh I, I, this might sound silly, but there's a few things that I do that that help me um, recover. Um, one, I do run, and I run long distances, and it's not something I used to do. Um, but now I run. I do. I do crazy Disney races, like a half marathon followed by a marathon, and all these kind of things. I'm actually just about to launch a marathon campaign with a, a former prisoner with uh, um, with uh, Jorge Toledo from Venezuela. Uh, after five years in prison, he's running the Marine yep. Corps, and I'm doing it with him um, to fundraise to support families. Um, a, a running gets out a lot of this, and actually, when when you're uh, the best runs is when your head is you forget that you're running because you're thinking through all of this stuff, and that helps a lot. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing I do sometimes because that's the only thing I can do at home is I, I plant myself on the couch with my daughter who's now nine and we watch silly sitcoms uh modern family is one of our favorites and we mm-hmm. just watch it we binge it for a while and it just like it it it, it numbs you but in a pleasant way so that so that helps and then uh, uh the the one part that very few people know about well maybe now now more people will know about but but once a year this sounds crazy but i i go on a little bit of a solitary escape and of all the places that mm-hmm. you would think i go to vegas um and it's in you know it sounds it sounds weird because well, what's relaxing <laughs> about that now it's not vegas that you think i go and I, I i plant myself in a lazy river i have a little floaty and i just float and i drink diet coke all day and it just it, there's something there about people who are completely in a different world nobody asks you what you do uh, but everybody's extremely friendly and it's just, it's a kind of a mental break. Um, I did learn in life, in my personal life, that uh, mental health is extremely important uh, because if you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of others. Uh, my wife suffers from depression and yeah. she taught me so much of everything that I just talked about for the last hour on emotional intelligence, on empathy. That That's her lessons. So her struggle and her and, and her journey uh, that I really deployed in in my professional world because before that, uh, you know, you probably met me before when we were students, and I was, you know, I was your typical, you know, former Israeli guy, you know, trying to make his way. Uh, therapy, that's for weak people. No, it's not, uh, and that's something that I had to learn. Thank you for sharing that as well. 
um, about what you've learned from your wife. I know she's been a great support. Yes, she is. So I, I wanted to take a, a little bit of a step back. I mean, you, you've walked this incredible journey. Like you, you've mentioned you were a, a paratrooper, you know, when you were first growing up and then you came to the yeah. U.S., you studied, you, and now you are, you know, releasing hostages globally. Kind of what, what drove you? Did, did you know that you would end up in something like this when you were young? Like, how did you envision I had Mickey, no idea. I mean, I I, I was a, a pretty uh, a shy introvert as a teenager. I broke through that in high school through encouragement of my you know high school principal, to be honest, um, uh, a, a little bit. And he made me, he convinced me to run to the student council, which I was like, why? Uh, but I did. Uh, the military uh, gave me an element of trust and or, or component of of leadership that comes not from your personal charisma or lack thereof, in my case, or confidence, but it came from professionalism. And so knowing what I'm doing gives me the confidence to sound like I sound and to and, and to believe in what I do. And, and that that was the basic layer for me to, to grow up on and to build on. But in the military, I, I've served for six years and I've been in combat and I commanded a, a unit of 120 soldiers and officers and I've lost people and I got injured myself. So it's it's been a, an intense, it, it was for six years, it was mainly in South Lebanon. And, uh, and I came out of it, um, it with a clear conviction that violence just never solves the problem. It might feel like it does in the short term. It might feel like it's the only solution you have. But in the long term, it always backfires. It never solves the problem. And so I left uh, the army convinced that what I want to do in life is actually looking at nonviolent uh, work and, and conflict resolution. And so that's kind of, uh, and it came for me growing up in Israel and serving, it came for me from a very, very um, a Zionist kind of uh, a centrist uh, perspective of saying, look, the only way to guarantee uh, the future of Israel as a democracy and as a homeland for the Jewish people, um, is if we have a Palestinian state side by side. That that was a, a, a clear conclusion for me growing up and serving in the military. And only when I started working in this field, years after, and after we graduated from Georgetown, and actually met Palestinians, not in the checkpoint, but actually Palestinians, that my motivation started expanding. It's not only because it's good for me as an as an Israeli or for my family, it's because these people are good people. And because they deserve that determination and that freedom and that agency of for their lives. And it happens to be good on all fronts. And as my 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 life expanded beyond that and started engaging with, with other countries and other people, I realized that what was true in my little micro uh, uh, microcosm is true elsewhere, almost everywhere. And so that conviction kind of grew, grew, grew. And, some, you know, sometimes my wife likes to say, oh, you're a pacifist. And it's like, it, it's funny because it's such a, a it's such a political uh, connotation to be a pacifist. But what can I say? I, I, I truly, I can't be given a simple example of where violence solved the problem. Again, people can put anecdotes on short term, but I can counter that with a long term um, uh, impact that was not useful. Uh, and so... I knew that, I knew, it was developing that way. 
uh, as I was growing. Uh, when I came to the U.S., again, chasing, chasing the girl that is my wife, and I found out that the narrative that I grew up with in Israel about what happened in Israel, what happened in the, in, in the formation of the state of Israel and the war of independence and the, uh, the Palestinian refugees, what I grew up with, the narrative was not exactly accurate. And that truth was way more complicated. And I remember I confronted my, my dad with that. And we had an honest conversation about it, uh, and and he said, "Look, it's it's you have to grow up in a certain narrative because you're going to have to defend with your life the uh, the state." But the truth is, the world is really really complicated, and and with that kind of these are kind of the the fundamental moments that kind of shaped and how I look at it. And then, as I mentioned before, the 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 work specifically on on releases of of prisoners and and hostages uh, that came as a bunch of coincidences that just uh, captured and I, I not to make light of the of the of the thing i know people who play golf will get it when you first time you try and you go and hit the ball and one time you hit it right at that point you're addicted you just can't stop and you might not hit right again for 20 years but you can't stop uh, because the one time that you see a successful return and you see the 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 look in the family's eyes and you know what you what, how their lives have been changed by that you can't stop you just can't stop wow i i i get it and what i i hear a lot um because you, you've spoken about moral compass and some people will think that the moral compass is something that you are given as a as a child you grow up in a certain environment and that shapes shapes you and for most people it probably does but for some of us who then either voluntarily or involuntarily get removed from that environment and have the ability to see what else is out there it often changes like you just said you think oh maybe the narrative i've been told my entire life maybe there are parts of it that aren't necessarily true and i remember at Georgetown in our class, I mean, we were a huge mix. You know, there were Americans like me. There were people from, I don't know how many different countries in in our class alone. And I remember it's the it's the first time where my my best friend is Brazilian, and I hang out with a Lebanese guy on the weekend, and we go out drinking with <laughs> a Kazakh. And it was for me, you know, even though I I had traveled and I had done Peace Corps and lived in Africa before that and been removed from my American grow uh you know heritage and everything it was a very nice place what that felt like yeah. a little safe space where it didn't matter you know you just went out to the bar on the weekend with whoever you know <laughs> and and that little the those little relationships and realizations that form as a result yeah. of that when you're taken out of yeah the and i remember one of the important. one of the first classes that we had to take at georgetown was globalization and one of the key things from globalization that absolutely blew my mind is that the books that we were given to read were not Ameri-centric. They, and they were suddenly you read a book and it tells the history of the world that you know, but from a completely different perspective. And, and you suddenly realize, wait a minute, yeah. this could have played completely differently. Uh, and, and, and I love that uh, because it gives you that, that perspective. 
and what you say is absolutely right because when you when you and that's kind of the heart of, of fringe when you take away the the flags that we wear or the the suits that fit our you know our roles and you're able to kind of just engage on the human level you you find so much commonalities and how hard should it be to then find common things that you tangible things that you can achieve even if you absolutely disagree on a bunch of things and and i think there is a you know, we, we live in a really, really difficult time now in the world, into, not only in the world, in the United States, I- even domestically, um, uh, between society, between communities, and 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 people get confused. Um, I, I use the, the term empathy a lot, and people get confused between empathy and sympathy. And it's really important to distinguish between the two, because empathy is really when you step into somebody else's shoes genuinely. And you understand how they think. You understand how they see the world. You understand how, why they do what they do. Um, it doesn't mean that you endorse it. It doesn't mean that it becomes your own objective. Sympathy is when when you align objectives. Empathy is just genuinely understanding uh, where they come from. And people who can't do empathy or are not trained or are not exposed to empathy, because you know, yes, people come with it naturally, but you can you can practice it. You can learn it. People who don't have that, they confuse and conflate the two. And so, when I show up, the example for that as an Israeli, as a, even as a former you know Israeli officer, and people in Israel hear me talk about the Palestinians and their rights, and the need to have Palestinian state, not because only because it's good for us, but because it's the right thing to do, immediately label me as a Palestinian hugger and a self-hating Israeli. And that's because they're incapable of empathy without sympathy. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's such a, a huge problem for us as a society. Look, I in the United States, I mean, I come from a very, very specific political, you know, spot on the spectrum. And it doesn't mean that the people that I absolutely disagree with in the United States are evil. Even if, they're supporting policies that I think are absolutely terrible. But again, you ask the question, why? Yeah. And when I try to understand why um, why white supremacists in the United States are doing what they're doing, why they're behaving the way they are, or they have been over the last uh, few years in a, in a way that they haven't before, at least not publicly, I'm not looking to justify their actions, not at all. I'm trying to understand what is it, what in their narrative? What is it in the way they see? Where does the fear come from? Because if you understand that, maybe we can actually put a dent in it. Maybe we can address it. And uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, at the end of the day, the two the two peoplehoods, the the Israelis and and the Palestinians, are a mirror of each other. These are two peoples that have suffered. A national level PTSD. And we have never approached it from an emotional perspective. We approach it from a territorial, from a religious, from a cultural perspective. But at the end of the day, if you look at a, at a, at a, a typical, again, I'm generalizing here, a typical Israeli would be a progressive, generally progressive individual and with liberal thoughts and, and stuff. Until you mention the word Palestinian and something clicks. And that click is not a rational thing, it's an emotional thing. Because it's it's generated from trauma. And the same goes with Palestinians. 
it's it's amazing how much of a mirror they are of each other and how close they are and actually as peoples and communities and unless we we start realizing that this is emotional and it's trauma and it's a reaction to trauma and when we do recognize that maybe there are different things we can do i hear you and i i think for people who are used to being labeled or treated in a certain way the fact that you are coming in and you are seeking to understand and see them. I mean, that's a very powerful relationship building tactic is feeling seen and understood by someone. But they also, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that there's also, they are clear about what your intentions are. I mean, you are, you don't have a, a card from the U S government, you know, when you're coming in to see someone. So is the, is the fact that you're coming in with intentions that it might be different than political intentions, something that also helps beyond the establishing of trust. So it's, it's fascinating that you that you use the, the word intentions because I, I find I put so much weight on intentions and, and how people perceive your intentions. And uh, look, even though I don't come with a US government card, in some of these countries that I work with, there's always an assumption that you are mm-hmm. somehow representing the government. And even though you deny it, there's some level of assumption because in their world, there's no such thing as civil society. Um, and so there's there's kind of assumptions in it. I, I have learned to trust that when I'm myself, I'm my authentic self, my authenticity comes through. So I don't need to say to somebody, oh, I'm authentic. You just, you just, you have to trust that it comes through because it's, because it's who you are. And sometimes it takes time. And so the amount of people who believe that I am either a, you know, an agent of the U.S. government, a, a, a CIA agent, or even worse, the Mossad agent from Israel is, I can't tell you enough how many, how many things they actually one of my funniest uh, stories is that every time uh, a friend of mine from the U.S. government leaves the government, we always have the traditional coffee. And we say, oh, you know how everybody believes you're a Mossad agent. It's like, um, it's it's kind of how it works. But over time, I've learned to trust that that if you're authentic, people see it, people accept it, and people realize your intentions. The things that hurt me most is not if people disagree with me, people might actually, you know, really don't like me, is when people doubt your intentions that's where it really hurts that really hurts and that's when you kind of lose that because now you're chasing somebody you want to make sure that they know that your intentions are true and i've I, i've learned that you know you can't you can't chase it that way you just have to trust that your actions and your uh, your conduct over 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 the time proves that and that's been my ability to, you know, to communicate uh, and and work when we work with the Iranians, uh, when it comes to some some of the prisoners that were in Iran that were able to get back, there's still cases, there's still uh, Americans in Iran held that we're working on now, as well. Uh, we worked not only on the prisoners in Iran, we also worked on ways to get pediatric cancer medicine uh, for children in Iran, which proves to be really really difficult from the United States, not because you can't find donors. And pharmaceutical companies that are willing to donate it, and and medicine is exempt from the sanctions on paper, but still somebody needs to move it in, which means that there needs to be a transaction, and all financial transactions are sanctioned. And you would think, who on earth would be against getting 
cancer for, uh, treatment for children. Well, policy is, even if it's not on paper, in practice it is. And when uh, my counterparts in Iran saw how much we put into this in an effort to, to get it done, they know that this is, you know, that we're genuine about this. Um, one more example, sorry, when we when we engaged initially to try and get uh, Paul Whelan, the American, who is still in Russia right now, he's been left behind about four times in, in my book on opportunities to come home. And when we engaged the Russians on this one, uh, the first response of the Russians was, well, it's funny you're asking us or uh, complaining about the treatment of Paul Whelan when we have a prisoner in the United States, Konstantin Yeroshenko, who's been denied a basic human rights and medical uh, access. And my response to that was, wait a minute, I didn't know about that. Do you have material? And of course, they were prepared. The Russians are very professional. And they gave me that. And I looked at them and the governor was with me. And he said, let us look into it just because, you know, we're not working exclusively for, for Americans here. And, you know, we studied this. Konstantin Yeroshenko was at that point 11 years in prison in the American prison in Connecticut. Uh, he was actually arrested in Liberia by the Liberians. He was a, he was flying a plane with drugs there. And he was beaten up in Liberia and they broke his teeth, all but four of them. And because it was not life-threatening, he has been denied a dentist in an American prison for all these years. The guy couldn't chew. And so we ended up going all the way, the governor and myself, all the way to the attorney general of the United States, William Barr at the time, and said, let us pay for a dentist to go see him. And he said, why? And he said, because we believe there will be a reciprocal response for that. First, it's the right thing to do. And second, if you care about the way that Americans are treated, you need to take care of this. And to his credit, again, Bill Barr, somebody that I politically absolutely disagree with, when you meet him in person, he's not a bad person. He looked at us. He said, oh, no, I, I'll let you do that. And within a week, we sent a dentist and uh, who saw Yaroshenko and started treating his teeth. And within days of that, Paul Whelan received his medical treatment in, in uh, outside of the prison in, 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 in Russia, proving the point. Uh, and so, again, it's it's it's... The, you know, what the Russians learned from that on us is that we're not just talking around this. We're not big talking. Like this, this was something that was important for us. And I, it has nothing to do with Yaroshenko's guilt or innocent or the level of his crime or how it related to the United States. It was a basic thing. Like yeah. The guy sits in prison for 11 years. Why? Why deny him that? Uh, same goes, again, I'm, I'm following a lot of examples. The The former... Iranian ambassador to the United States, uh, to the sorry to the United Nations. When he was here, he had cancer, and he was in treatment. He was in a bad shape, and his son wanted to visit him. He thought that he's going to die, and we have de we the United States denied a visa for a son to do to see his dad. Why? Maximum pressure. What does that have to do with it? Human. His father. Thank God he didn't die and 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 he survived it, but it was just a devastating thing to see and 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 to to try and argue against and 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 hit a wall in this it just it that again it goes full circle on fringe diplomacy it's it's that neglected 
a, a layer of human interaction and humanity because we're just so bogged down with the political choreography and the and the you know and the flags that we wear. It reminds me of the stories of like these small little moments in people's lives that mean a lot and that they remember later on. Yeah. Because you never know when that guy he may end up in a position of authority later on and he will remember I was allowed, you know, they made an exception. Yeah. They saw me as a human. Yeah. And and it's and it's true because the the the, the, the it circles around even in my, you know, I you know, I know we're old now, but but older, but we're still young. We're still spring chickens, right? Um, even in 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 Mana, that circle absolutely comes around. Um so Governor Richardson, that was before my time, when he first engaged with the North Koreans, that was in the early 90s. He was a, he was a young congressman and he went there and there are two American pilots that were shot down in a Red Cross helicopter by the North Koreans. Uh, one survived, one died. And he stayed there until he got them out. And a young uh, a North Korean foreign service officer that was in charge of his visit is now the North Korean ambassador to the United Nations. And that relationship stayed. And so that's the governor. Now, even in my life, I start seeing that with, with, with the Cubans, uh, the same uh, uh, young officers that I dealt with back in 2013, 2014, uh, are suddenly now senior directors in the Cuban foreign ministry. And, 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 and we have a relationship. Um, and that's, you know, it, it, it depends. And the same goes, I know people like to... Uh, Again, it's all the money investment in in the uh, in things like the you know the the Fulbright scholarships, the programs, the exchange programs that we have. Oh, why are we paying for all these foreigners to come to the United States and to like? I cannot overemphasize how many times I have met with officials of countries that are supposed to be um, uh, antagonistic to the United States, and inside the conversation. After the formalities break and, you know, you raise a toast and, and suddenly you realize everybody speaks English. You say, where do you learn English? Oh, I went to the University of Kentucky. I was a Fulbright. And, and you just, people have no idea how much it pays back, that investment. You might not know when, you might not know how long, but it pays back. These people, it's, they know, they understand the United States not in order to manipulate it, they just understand us better. And it helps in moments of crisis. Absolutely. And I I served in the, in the Peace Corps after my bachelor's degree in West Africa in Togo. And even when I was there in the early 90s, I would have kind of middle-aged Togolese people come up to me because the Peace Corps had been around since the 60s and in Togo since probably the 70s. Yeah, they would come up to me and they would say, you know, because, you know, I'm standing out because I'm a white person in, in the middle of this village. And they'd be like, you know, I learned English for the first time from a Peace Corps volunteer in 1978 or something. And they they would remember their name. They would remember, you know, we would go down to the river and we'd go swimming down there. It makes such an impact on people. Any type of human connection, especially when it's from somebody who's foreign or outside or something that is outside of their normal, yeah. normal thing. But we, we say that every time we, uh, we get ready in the last briefing before we take one of the fringe uh, diplomacy trips uh, and engagement, 
uh, I like to say to all the participants, I said, look, guys, you're, you're there's no such thing as, as passive observers. You are going to be active participants in every single conversation and every meeting you have. You might not know how, but it will have an impact because yeah. it might not be meaningful to you. It will be extremely meaningful to the person who's engaging you and you have no idea in what ways. Um, uh, and it's a, again, it's a, there's a there's a, a joke. It's a, hopefully it's appropriate, but you know it's it's kind of like uh, and I used it a lot because I have no shame in this. And I say there's no such thing as observers in a game of strip poker. You have to be a participant in order to be in the room, and and <laughs> and to me it's the same goes when it comes to this kind of diplomacy. Like you can't just be an observer. You're not, you're not a witness and uh, 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 to world affairs. You are a part of them. And when you engage in these meetings and when you engage with foreigners, you, you have to own it. Absolutely. Not, not everybody has the opportunity, you know, at some point in their life to, to be taken out of their normal element and to make these type of connections. Yeah. But you had mentioned reading, you know, being able to read outside the, your normal perspective. Yeah. Are there any other ways that you encourage people or if you, if you, you know, could say all children have to do something like this. There's a new course in in primary school. All children have to learn to do something else. How, what would that thing be to encourage this? Well, you know the saying that when you're a when you're a hammer, every problem is a nail. And so for me, of course, because I'm I'm so obsessed with uh, emotional intelligence, I, I I want to say that the basic trainings of emotional intelligence, and it can be done at a very very early age. Uh, it can be gamified. It can be like a lot of different experiences. It's just, it's such an important and missing part in our in our society now. We, we constantly try to fight back against technology and advancements because of the negative impact or the, the negative ways that people use it. Because technology is a tool, obviously, it's a neutral tool. I believe that emotional intelligence is one of the key um, uh, competencies that we need to instill in in children. I know. I, I mean, God help me. My daughter, who is now nine, is uh, 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 fortunately and unfortunately very emotionally intelligent. I take she, she's adopted. She she doesn't carry any of my genes, so this is much more of of, of environmentally uh, observed. So I have no credit in it. But I say fortunately because I love that in her, because that will make her a great human being as she grows up. Uh, the unfortunate part is because it gives you a hell of a time as a parent uh, because she she understands, she sees her emotional, she knows how to, she's aware and manages her emotional state very well. And she's aware of ours and is able to to use that as well to to advance her needs and her desires. But it showed, it showed when, when she was very young and I was doing this work, um, I used to kind of, you know, I used to claim that it's for her that I would, live without really making a big deal out of it. But yeah. then when I was gone, uh, I was told by my wife that she was a menace. And then when I traveled to North Korea uh, for the auto one year negotiations, uh, she was uh, she was three and a half at the time. And I grabbed her, you know, the just the day before the, at the park. And I said, hey, her name is Noah. I said, you know, you know how every now and then I need to travel uh, for work. And she said, yes. And I said, so I need to travel tomorrow. So where are you going? Well, I'm going to a country called North Korea. Where is that? Well, it's kind of on the other side of the planet. Why? Well, because there's a boy there 
that is in trouble and I'm trying to help him get back to his parents. And she said, what's his name? And I said, Otto. And she said, and will he be my friend when he comes home? And I said, yes, he will. And I went. And that trip, my wife told me, because I couldn't be in touch uh, from North Korea, she told me that not only that, that my daughter behaved really well, but she kind of owned it. She was helpful. And, and she was telling people that, you know, her, her dad is going to help a boy. Um, and, and, and kids are capable of understanding these things way more than we give them credit. And sometimes we, we, we claim that we don't want, it's, they're, too, it's, they're too young for this. No, that's our own protection. It's not them. They're, they're, they're actually pretty good at, at, at understanding these things. And so she's, uh, and, uh, you know, she proved to me how, uh, how well kids can, can adopt and adapt and, and, and get that kind of, and digest this kind of material uh, when it comes to the feeling circle, when it comes to um, to be able to articulate your feelings, um, complicated feelings. Uh, one of the moments, sorry, I, I go too long, but we just, uh, my daughter just had her first uh, summer camp, sleepaway summer camp, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when, uh, when we dropped her there. And it was the, really the first night in her life that she was without either me or my wife. So it was a jump from never sleep over or something like that into a two-week two sleepaway camp in West Virginia. And as we went over there and we helped her uh, make her bed in her bunk, in her cabin there, she looked at my wife and she said, I'm so excited for camp, but I'm also going to miss you a lot. And there was that, just that statement of a nine-year-old that is able to articulate two conflicting emotions and have no problem with it. That's something that we need to do. The ability to hold two opposing ideas and still be able to function and reconcile both. That's are you hopeful for the future, Mickey, in terms of, you know, you you think that children nowadays are exposed to lots of things. Are you hopeful? I am um how do I say it? I'm 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 really, really hopeful for the long term. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very worried in the short term. Um I I'm afraid that that lessons that we have learned as humanity, we forget and we need to relearn them. And it's very unfortunate because relearning them will be at a really, really um, high cost. And I wish there was a shortcut. I wish there was a way to avoid the cost and just remind people of it. But it seems that we can't. Uh, So that part I'm really, really worried about. We have not hit bottom yet. Mm-hmm. on this and, and the suffering and the pain that will come with it, it worries me a lot I wish I'm wrong but on the other side of it like everything else in, in, in the advances world things will come and go quicker than they used to the bounce will be quicker and we as a society I believe will leapfrog from it I think we're going to look back at this period and say this was an adjustable time that humanity had to was dealt with new tools and didn't really know how to deal with them. But once we, we get a grasp, a grasp on it, we're going to leapfrog as humanity and as society. Um, so I'm opt- very optimistic in the long term. I'm very, very worried and fearful of the cost it will take. Mm. Understood. Understood. So I, I want to ask you a bit. You've, you've written a book 
um, that, which has not yet come out, but can yeah. you tell us a little bit about it and why, why you feel like you want to write a book? Yeah, I, uh, I, I finished, I submitted the manuscript It's with the publisher. Uh, it will go out. It will come out next year. I don't know how authors do that. How do they survive the time from the moment they submit the manuscript until it gets out? Because I'm impatient because you did all the work you, you wrote it. Yeah. Um, the book is, is, um, it's kind of a memoir, but not really that way. Um, it does tell uh, in very specific details uh, stories of negotiations and get, getting back um, people who are wrongfully detained around the world. Um, some of the things that we talked about here and uh, uh, many others. It does have a little bit of more of a background on me and how I got into this, um, which was the uncomfortable part of the book for me. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's written as a thriller. Uh, kind of so it's not a, it's not a on wednesday we did this it's much more of the of the thriller and what i try to do with this and the purpose for me for write, writing this book is conveying the ideas of emotional intelligence and empathy uh, i know i'm going to get i hope i'm going to get the readers come in because of the intrigue about the stories and the cases that they've heard in the news about and they want to know how it works it's not a how-to, it's not a spoon-feeding, like, you know, eat your salad uh, kind of book. It's through these stories that I'm hoping that uh, uh, that the ideas, um, the themes that we talked about, a lot of them we talked about here, about the nature of negotiations, the ability to influence somebody's behavior, the, the concepts of good and evil, um, uh, empathy, emotional intelligence, that somebody who read the book, when he finishes the book or she finishes the book, they have actually maybe unknowingly or not not unknowingly because you're not trying to manipulate people but but that's not that's not necessarily what they intended coming but they come out with with a better understanding of these concepts uh, so it has some some things in it like it explains the north korean narratives or why they do what they do it explains the russian narrative that i've learned and uh, over the last few years of why they do what they do uh, and again not because i agree with it but because we need to understand it Mm-hmm. and right you know hopefully uh, people will read it i will i mean i'm already hooked like listen <laughs> the stories themselves are amazing i i I, 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 I I was told by the people who who re- read the manuscript that it does sound like me which made me very happy very good so it's authentic exactly exactly uh so authentic and and very exciting and and something that will be a page turner probably and you know what? I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt if they actually option it for a movie, um, because your life sounds like a Tom Clancy novel. I, um, I, yeah, no. There, there's there's conversations about about the optioning of it. I, I what I'm hoping is that it, it, the, there will be a scripted option to make a dramatized version of this, um, yep. because there's so much you can do with it. I, I, I believe that the media of movies and TV shows um, as a way of of advancing a, a social good is is huge. And I think we have plenty of examples around, uh, you know, from from our history about this of how to socialize ideas and how to embed them. Um, and I really, really hope that uh, that this can do its part in in helping. So, so the most important question of this entire conversation: yeah. Who is going to play Mickey Bergman in the film? Um, here's the funny thing about it: we, we, you know, we played it. Um, uh, at times, we we joke around it, and it cannot be a a pretty face because my face is not pretty it needs to be it needs to be uh, uh something a little bit rougher 
um, uh, from this. And it's not, it certainly cannot be uh, somebody with guns blazing going around and, and bullying and, and punching people. So I don't know. I mean, I have my man crush on a bunch of, of, of actors like, uh, like Matt Damon, uh, but I don't think he's going to play me. And he is a pretty face. So that's not going to work. Well, you never know. You never know. <laughs> so what what's next for you, Mickey? What's what's to be done? Um, so we are, well, so first of all, I've, I've written the book. I, I can't wait for it to come out. Uh, there'll be a lot around the book uh, for me personally. Hopefully it will be successful. Um, uh, but in terms of work, um, you know, we've, in, over the last, uh, what is it now, 20, 20 months, we, we were able to bring back about 90, well, I should say 19 of the families that work with us uh, have their loved ones back home. That's a, a, a huge number. Unfortunately, it's partially because there's so many more that have been taken than usual. Because uh, typically there's, uh, at least Americans out there, there's about, uh, uh, traditionally there would be 20 something Americans on average that are taken. Over the last um, uh, decade, it has grew to 70. So there's much more Americans that have been taken. It's been part of, I mean, there's repeat offenders on this, uh, Russia, Venezuela, China, and Iran. So, and they hold about 75% of, of most of the cases. So there's much more cases. I am currently working on 21 more cases. Uh, some of them are the high-profile cases that that are out there on on the, you know in the cases in 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 Russia of Paul Whelan. Um, uh, there are Iran cases that are pretty famous uh, and are out there. Uh, there are cases in Russia that nobody talks about and that we're working on. Uh, there are other cases. There's still people, even though we had a big success in return from Venezuela, we still have. Uh, at least the cases that I'm working with, there's at least three Americans that I'm working on, on Vene in Venezuela. And I think for me that it's, it, those are, they're solvable. They're not, they're, they're not stuck. There's, there's some cases that are uh, harder to solve, especially for, for us, because it really depends on the captors, whether they accept informal or not accept informal. Uh, and yeah, and it's, it's, it's 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 a lot and it's hard um uh, but i think this coming year there'll be some more returns fantastic fantastic i just want to thank you so much mickey for spending so much time uh for being so vulnerable and open and so insightful um because there are there you have so many amazing stories and we could just spend 3 hours just doing stories which would have been amazing but to me it's more the the insight on emotional intelligence and because that's replicable we can all learn something from that as well i i hope so thank you mickey thank you erica thank you for listening today i hope this has been a useful investment of your time if you feel inspired by this episode please rate it and consider subscribing i'm keen to know how it's impacted you now go out there and seize those moments <laughs>